Grace, mercy, and peace be to you in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us together now turn our attention to the hearing of God's word, our call to worship tonight, from the book of Psalms, chapter 95, the first three verses. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Amen. Amen. Please now take up your hymnals as we sing hymn number 102, Come Sound His Praise Abroad. Number 102, if you're able, please stand to sing. will please remain standing and turn back to hymn number 21. God moves in a mysterious way. Number 21.
Please be seated. And now let us come to the Lord in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, we are glad to be found in your presence again this evening, to come and sing your praises, to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For you alone, O Lord, our God, you are the great God, a great King above all other gods. Indeed, all gods of this world are the vain imaginations of men, women, boys, and girls. You and you alone, O Lord, are King over heaven and earth, that you are the one who rules and reigns supremely and sovereignly over all the affairs of men. And so it is, O Lord, we come to bow down and worship you again this evening. Our Father, we come with our prayers of confession of our sins. We acknowledge again the sins of thought and word and deed, sins of things done, sins of things left undone. Lord, we pray for your mercy. We know that there is no good thing within us that would merit your forgiveness your grace and mercy, but we thank you for one who interposed himself for the sake of such sinners as we are. We thank you for our great probation keeper, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for our great penalty payer, the Lord Jesus. And as we rejoice in who he is and all that he has done for your people, then we come again pleading his merits this evening and ask that for His sake You would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, then we do come with our prayers of thanksgiving for all of Your goodness to us today. We are thankful for the food that we have eaten, the clean water we have to drink. We are thankful for the shelter of our homes. We thank You for the love of our families, for our employments. We are thankful, O Lord, for the relative peace and security of our land. We are thankful, O Lord, that we can gather here this evening unmolested and unhindered. For all of these good gifts, O Lord, we give you thanks. Most of all, we give you thanks for your great salvation. We thank you that we come as those who have been set uh, at right relation with the God of heaven the one who has declared us righteous just in His sight, the one, O Lord, who has adopted us into His family, by which, O Lord, we call upon You as Father this evening. You are the one, O Lord, who continues to work in us, even conforming us to the perfect image in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And You are the one who we trust, O Lord, and know even that you will bring us to glorious perfection in body and soul, even at that last great day. And so, O oh Lord, we give thanks 
for all of your good gifts and for your work in us and for us in your Son. Father, then we come with our prayers of evening petition. We come to pray for your church wherever she may be found. We pray again this evening for the persecuted church and ask that you might have mercy upon the saints who pay a great price for naming the name of Christ. Wherever they may be found, O Lord, in the Far East, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in other parts of the world, O Lord, you know the particulars. We pray that you would strengthen your people, that they might make that good confession, even as our Lord Jesus did before his great persecutors and enemies. We pray that in their testimony, even to Christ and his great salvation, that even through these things, O Lord, and their patient endurance, that many might be brought to you, even some from their bitterest of persecutors. Lord, would you not make them even great trophies of grace to your great glory? Father, then we pray for your church in our own land, even those many congregations scattered across our nation, some known better to us and in more detail of their circumstances and your providence for them, others less so. But nevertheless, Lord, each true church calling upon you, part of that one true body of Christ, we pray for them and ask that you would sustain them in their uh, work of the gospel, in their testimony to the truth, even in difficult circumstances for some, uh, facing opposition, O Lord, even in our own land. We pray that you would uh, grant them to know that their work in the Lord is never in vain. Lord, we pray for the churches in our own region, here in our own uh, city, in our own county, in our own state, adjoining states. And Lord, have mercy upon each one. We remember elders and deacons and members. Lord, in each calling, we pray that you would grant grace, that you would grant strength and perseverance, even to uh, seek the great advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the extension of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, even across our land and even to the ends of the earth. Lord, to that end, we do pray for uh, uh, our visitors upcoming this, uh, uh, this week. We pray for the work in South Korea. We ask that you would have mercy upon uh, the congregation there and the wider work of uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would sustain our brothers, and even as they spend time here stateside, uh, giving reports of the work and uh, seeking, uh, Lord, further support, uh, that they might uh, continue this work. We pray that you would watch over them and bless them. We pray for their families who will be remaining behind. We pray that you would protect them and that you would comfort them until they all might be reunited again in your kindness and in your mercy. Father, then we do uh, pray for the needs that are represented here in our own congregation. Remember those who cannot be with us this evening, wherever they may be, kept by mercy and necessity, uh, kept, O oh Lord, by sickness, illness, whatever the circumstance. Again, we pray that you would be their portion, you would be their strength. For those who may be able to uh, watch via the live stream, we pray that you would bless that to them and that you would in your good time restore, O oh Lord, those who struggle with a variety of uh, health concerns and circumstances uh, so that they might uh, sit together here with us again 
as we call upon you. Lord, you know all of our hearts. You know our cares. You know our concerns. You know our sorrows. You know our perplexities. Father, we cast ourselves upon you, knowing that you are the sovereign God. You order your providence, which is mysterious often to us, but, Lord, is fully known to you and is ordered for your great glory and even the everlasting good of your saints. Grant, O Lord, that we may again this evening trust in you and rest in you, and that the balm of your gospel might be the great uh, tonic for our souls this evening. Father, then as we turn to your word, we pray for your help. We ask for the help of your Spirit that he would come again to open blind eyes and stop deaf ears, that he might illumine our minds, that he might grant understanding, even as we would begin a new series this evening in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us in perhaps less familiar books of the Holy Scriptures. Grant us to know, O Lord, that you have breathed out these words as much as any of the books of the Bible. Help us, O Lord, to give ourselves diligently to what you have said and grant that we might respond aright in repentance and faith. Hear our prayers, forgive our sins, for Jesus' sake. Amen. For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the Old Testament, we turn again this evening to the book of Psalms, and this time to Psalm number 73. Psalm number 73, and we're going to read the whole psalm together from verse 1 through verse 28. This psalm has the title or superscription, A Psalm of Asaph. So, Psalm 73 and verses 1 through 28. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 73 at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. And so far, God's Word. Please be seated. And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. As you are turning there, we are going to begin, Lord willing, this evening, a new sermon series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I have put them together by way of introduction because of the close connection of these two books. And uh, in the ancient Hebrew, they actually considered one book, and sometimes called Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. Um, but in our English translations, uh, they are separated and called Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we will, uh, Lord willing, as we progress, uh, move through the book of Ezra and then uh, to the book of Nehemiah so that we complete uh, the exposition of both books um, sequentially. Also, as we're turning there, I do want to um, acknowledge my appreciation uh, for those who have studied these books and gone uh, before us. Um, it is good that we can stand on shoulders of giants. Uh, we are not the first uh, as the present-day church to think about this portion of the Scripture. And so uh, it occurred to me that I did not uh, do this at the end of our exposition of Hosea, which I customarily do. 
many of those that um, have studied these books were the same scholars uh, for the book of Hosea, uh, men like Derek Kidner, the great uh, Hebraists, uh, Kyle and Dillich, um, Rick Phillips, Gary Smith, Douglas Stewart in the book of Hosea. Uh, now we're to Ezra and Nehemiah, again, Derek Kidner, Kyle and Dillich. Uh, other specific scholars in this book, uh, or these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, thankful for men like uh, F. Charles Fensham, perhaps less well-known to us, um, but others well-known like Derek Thomas, as well as H.G.M. Williamson. So many um, Old Testament uh, Christian, Christians who study the Old Testament, not Old Testament Christians, they're not that old, um, but those who have uh, given themselves uh, to this part of God's Word to our prophet. So, with all of that said, and hopefully you have found now the book of Ezra, uh, let's turn to Ezra chapter 1, and first of all read verses 1 through 4. This is God's Word. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. The God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem." Let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Amen. And so far, God's Word. And then if you would turn forward just to the next book, Nehemiah and to chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, and verses 1 through 3. Again, we hear God's Word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Amen. And thus far, then, the reading 
of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Why should Christians listen to sermons on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? We might even ask the question, why should Christians read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? What possible interest could believers have in two relatively obscure Jewish leaders who lived over 400 years before the coming of Jesus Christ? We here this evening live in the United States far from Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. We live in the 21st century, A.D., after the coming of Christ. So, what is the point of paying any attention, whether by reading them or by listening to an exposition of them? The primary reason, of course, and even our youngest children can understand this, is because they are in the Bible. That's why. I could stop. I don't need to say any more at this point to answer that question, do I? Because they are in the Bible. What does the Bible say about the Bible? We all know, or at least many of us do, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so that statement of Scripture, about Scripture, applies as much to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as any other portion of Scripture, whether it be better known to us or less known to us. But there's a further additional reason, a more specific reason, alongside that general comprehensive reason, and it is this. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah have a particular usefulness to us today in the 21st century, here in the United States. Indeed, we could say that they have a particular uh, usefulness to all Christians in the 21st century, wherever they may live, but particularly for Christians here in the West, as we call it. One commentator put it like this in his introduction. He says this, quote, In an age of experienced-centered, clap-happy worship and entertainment-orientated evangelism, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah direct our thoughts to a holy God who demands reverent worship and uncompromising loyalty from His people, end quote. Now, that's a bold statement, isn't it? It is very strong language and critique of much of what goes on in our day. But these books direct our thoughts away from what we may think is the most important thing to be doing, to think of God Himself, the Holy God and what He requires and demands, both in His worship and in the loyalty of His people. And so, we might summarize it like this. These two books 
call us back as God's people to a renewed obedience to the Word of the sovereign God, to a fresh realization of the power of prayer, and a wholehearted commitment to the work of God in fellowship with the people of God. Well, how might we summarize these two books? Uh, This is often the challenge when we start a new exposition. Uh, It's a challenge to do a summary of each passage uh, week by week, but when you try and summarize whole books, and now we have two of them this evening, um, I tried to keep it uh, still relatively short and not take up lots of space uh, in the bulletin. When it takes more space, then I know uh, maybe I need to shorten that down a little bit. Uh, It's all relevant maybe. Um, but maybe it's stretching the uh, definition of summary when, when sometimes it gets long. But here's the summary of these books. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah show that the Lord is a God who ever fulfills His promise, as seen in the return of the Jews from exile and their reestablishment in their land, in order that they may bring forth the Christ according to the flesh. And of course, that final phrase is the Pauline phrase from the book of Romans concerning the calling of God to uh, the ethnic Jewish nation from whom our Lord descended according to His human nature. So, that's what we see in these books. We see a holy God, a sovereign God, who is a faithful God, who fulfills His promise. And we see that in the return of the Jews from exile and in their reestablishment and in the Lord's fulfillment of His redemptive purpose even in and through these events. By way of introduction this evening, we are going to think about four things. First of all, the historical setting. Secondly, Jewish leaders. Thirdly, a Christ-centered interpretation, and then lastly, some main themes. So, first of all, the historical setting. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah continue the story of God's people from the books of the Chronicles. Indeed, the last two verses of Second Chronicles, and if you're still at Ezra chapter 1, then you can just turn the page over to the end of Second Chronicles, in, verse, in chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, you will see that they are quoted almost word for word in the opening verses of Ezra, Ezra 1 and verses 1 through 3a. Now, what do we find in the books of Chronicles? Again, they may not be the most familiar ones to us today, but the two books of the Chronicles record the death of Saul They trace the reigns of David and Solomon until the time of the division of the kingdom in 937 B.C. They then relate events in the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, which was our primary focus when we were in the book of Hosea, and also in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, as you may remember, as we went through the book of Hosea, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. 
And most of the Israelites from the northern kingdom were taken into captivity, never to return. Now, in spite of the warning that was to the southern kingdom, in spite of the continued warnings of the prophets that God continued to send to Judah, in spite of the warning of that defeat of Israel by the Assyrians and the exile of the northern kingdom, Judah continued in their persistent disobedience of God. It may seem astounding to us that they would do that, but they did. And so, consequently, God sent the Babylonians to conquer Judah as His judgment, and that conquest was completed in 586 B.C. Jerusalem then was captured and destroyed. Zedekiah, the king, was apprehended, and if you know the details of that story, you know that the Babylonians blinded him, put his eyes out. He was taken to Babylon, and many of the Jews from the southern kingdom were exiled with him to Babylon. We read of all of those things in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 18 through 25, and uh, at verse, uh, I'm sorry, 24:18 to chapter 25, verse 30, and in the book of the Chronicles, which is what we're thinking about right now, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 21. So, against that backdrop, we come to the book of Ezra. And this book opens with some of those exiled Jews returning home to Judah, now in 537. BC. And so, as we summarize this book, which is a relatively large book, uh, we might do it in this way. Chapters 1 through 6 tells the story of those next 20 years when, led by Zerubbabel, the Jews faced a lot of discouragement, but they eventually finished the building, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Ezra himself is not introduced in the book until we almost get halfway through, until chapter 7 at verse 1. Ezra then leads another group of exiles back from Babylon to Israel, to Judah. That's in 458 B.C. And the remaining chapters of the book, chapters 7 through 10, tell of the way in which Ezra did not rebuild a temple, but we might say rebuilt the people, rebuilt the people themselves into a people whose lives were pleasing to God. So, not only did the temple need to be rebuilt, but the people of God needed to be taught again of how they were to live pleasing to God in covenant loyalty to the Lord their God. And that was the great calling of Ezra that we read of in chapters 7 through 10. And so, to kind of get it fixed in our mind, the book of Ezra covers about 80 years. Now, at times, we've had some saints in our congregation who were of that sort of age. We don't have anybody here this evening, as I'm looking out, of that sort of age. Um, so, you know, be kind to whoever we do have here and say, well, it's kind of twice their lifetime or something like that. Think of your own lifetime and do the math. Um, you can see it's a relatively long period of time in terms of one lifetime, isn't it? It's 80 years here. 
Uh, sometimes we could sit down and read the book of Ezra in a relatively short period of time. And, and we don't get that sense of 80 years going by reading from chapter 1 to chapter 12. So we need to keep that in mind, that the events here are not happening today, tomorrow, next week, next month, it's all finished. It happens over a period of about 80 years. There is then a period of some 13 years between the closing scene in Ezra and when we come to the prayer of Nehemiah that we get to in Nehemiah chapter 1, perhaps one of the more familiar parts of the book of, of Nehemiah. In that book, chapters 1 through 12 cover Nehemiah's first visit to Jerusalem, uh, his first day in Judah, if you like your dates, 444 to 432 B.C. Now, during that time, the concern is not the temple, is not the rebuilding of the people per se, but the great priority in the book of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the city, and in particular, the city walls to defend Jerusalem. And so, it's during this time of Nehemiah, the city walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt and dedicated, and then we come to a final chapter by way of an addendum, uh, deals then with Nehemiah's second visit to Jerusalem. So, he comes on a first visit, goes back to Babylon, then comes back a second time. So, 1 through 12, first visit, chapter 13, second visit. Uh, one other thing to note here is the ministries of Ezra, the scribe, Nehemiah, the governor, overlapped. We know that from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12, verse 26, that tells us that explicitly. Um, and so, it's not all the things happen in the book of Ezra, and then we get all the things happening after that in the book of Nehemiah. There is overlap in the ministries of these men. Uh, indeed, if you want to get an absolute uh, overview uh, of the historical events of the time, then not only do we need to think about Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, of course, then we need to read uh, the books of the prophets in the post-exilic period. We've been through those in the years hearing uh, grace, um, prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, when you put all of that together, then you have all the biblical data of the historical background to this. But suffice to say this evening, um, all of these events that we'll come to in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are part of God's great plan of redemption. That's a key thing to remember. Um, sometimes it's just easy to get lost in all the dates and all the people and all the events. Uh, sometimes if you're not particularly interested in that and your eyes can start to glaze over a little bit and uh, go, I'm lost in all of this. But as we go through particulars, the big picture, so as we kind of come up in the helicopter over all of the trees and all of that to see the landscape here of God's whole redemptive purpose, uh, all of these events fit into that. And in particular here what's going on is that Israel must continue as a distinct and holy nation so that the promises relating to the coming of Messiah would be fulfilled according to the Word of God. That's what God is doing here in all of these details, in all of these lives, in all of these different places, so that that would come to fruition. Well, so much then for historical background. 
let's turn the second place to Jewish leaders and to think for a moment or two about these two men, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Azariah. Now, if you know anything about your Hebrew, the end bit, the R, should tell you something. That is a reference to something of God or of the Lord. That's why you get Isaiah, Jeremiah, Azariah, and so on. So many Jewish names had the R at the end um, because it referred something um, about God. The Azariah means the Lord has helped. So that's the name of this man, uh, Ezra, shortened form, his full name, Azariah, the Lord has helped. One commentator uh, observes this. He says, quote, God who helped Ezra used his servant as a helper of his people, end quote. And I think that's a useful way to um, think about this man. God helped him and used him to help his people. Ezra was a priest and he was a scribe, a scholar. Uh, he became, he had a, uh, an official function in the uh, Babylonian and then in the, really the Persian uh, empire as the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Um, to put it in modern day language, he became Secretary of State. We kind of identify with that, don't we, in our own government um, uh, roles. He was Secretary of State for Jewish Affairs under King Artaxerxes. Uh, you find that in Ezra chapter 7. Um, again, just a quick note, if you have interest in this, uh, you can look some of these things up in uh, good commentaries. Um, don't get lost in all the Persian king's names. Um, sometimes um, they are called one thing in the biblical history. Sometimes when you go to secular history, it's the same individual. They have a different name because lots of times in Persian um, uh, uh, kings, um, these are titles. They're not personal names. So they were not called Jeff or they were not called Philip or they were not called James. Uh, these are titles. Um, and so often they are repeated. Um, uh, they refer to the same title to different individuals. Um, but under King Artaxerxes of Ezra 7, he made Ezra Secretary of State for Jewish affairs, as we would say, uh, for the province of Judah. The book itself uh, is written in Hebrew, as we'd expect uh, in the Old Testament, but also a little bit of Aramaic. That won't uh, delay as long, um, but it's worth noting that. Uh, the Aramaic sections, uh, chapter 4, verse 8 through chapter 6, 18, and chapter 7, 12 through 26. Um, perhaps more significantly to us, um, part of the book is written, as we would say, uh, autobiographically from the first person, I, me. Um, we see that in chapter 7, verse 27 through 9.15. So from um, almost the point where Ezra himself is introduced, um, the narrative is written in the first person. Um, but that's not all the book. Um, the first uh, chapters are written more um, in a third person style, 
and often um, uh, comprise what the scholars think are official Persian documents of the time recording the history, like the Decree of Cyrus and so forth. Um, so again, we just got to get used to that as we go through the book, that there's a different style at times, um, from autobiographical to more narrative, descriptive, um, more formal language of official documents. Uh, at the end of the book, um, Ezra seems to disappear from sight, and uh, he disappears from the record until 13 years later when Nehemiah comes to the center of the stage, as it were. Um, didn't physically disappear. He was continuing to labor and to work for the Lord where the Lord had placed him among the people of God, um, but during that time, he was not the prominent figure. Uh, the focus turns to Nehemiah and uh, the labors of Nehemiah with the walls and the city. Well, then that brings us to Nehemiah. So, what about this man? Well, his name again has something to do with the Lord because it's Nehemiah, the A-H at the end. So, he does, his name doesn't mean the Lord has helped like Ezra, Azariah. His name means the Lord comforts, the Lord comforts Nehemiah. Uh, he arrived in Jerusalem with a further group of exiles, as I said, 13 years after Ezra, 445 B.C. Um, how might we um, describe the two books to get them distinct in our mind, but also to see the connection? Uh, that's the important thing to see between these two books is distinctions and connections, not one or the other, but both. Perhaps a good way to think of it is like this. The book of Ezra relates how the temple was rebuilt, whereas Nehemiah tells us how the city of Jerusalem was reconstructed. So Ezra, the temple, and all the things associated with temple worship, and Nehemiah to do with the city and its uh, rebuild and dedication. Uh, and so when you take the two books together, about 80 years for Ezra, uh, together, it's just over a hundred years. So you get about 20 years history in the book of Nehemiah. Um, so in total, starting with 538, when the first exiles return under Zerubbabel to about 430 BC, um, that's the time when Nehemiah exercised this second term of office in Jerusalem on his second uh, visit there. So about a hundred years. That's a round enough number, isn't it, that we can kind of get our minds around of the period that we're considering. Uh, as I said earlier, if you want to have a comprehensive view of this period of time in which these two men slot, um, you read these books, you read Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and uh, to get a complete picture, you also should probably read the book of Esther too um, to see what was happening in Persia during the same period that we are thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah in Jerusalem. Well, then in third place, we think about a Christ-centered interpretation, um, what we sometimes call reading the Scriptures through the Jesus lens. How do we um, look and see what is being um, advanced, fulfilled, progressed uh, with regard to the whole purpose of the Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ and His great work to save sinners? We thought about that this morning, didn't we? Saying, well, how do you interpret the Old Testament? We saw an example of that, how the author to the Hebrews does that. 
um, in chapter 10 as he cited, cited Psalm 40. Well, we get a chance to think about this again uh, throughout two whole books. Um, now, Ezra and Nehemiah taken together uh, has a somewhat surprising and seemingly at first awkward conclusion when we come to Nehemiah chapter 13. It's going to take a while for us to get there, um, but if you want to read through it, that would be a good thing to do, get yourself orientated. Again, let me commend that to uh, brothers, husbands, fathers, family worship. Um, don't try and do it maybe all in one night. That might be tough for your children. You know, you can do that. But, you know, over the next few weeks, maybe a chapter, uh, an evening, half a chapter, whatever they can manage, good to read through it. When you get to the end, to Nehemiah 13, um, there's this kind of end that jars a little bit. Because what we find there is after the great climax now of a holy people in the holy city having been reestablished, temple rebuilt, worship reestablished, the walls built and dedicated, distinction between the holy people and the profane people outside of the city. When all of that has been done, the last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13, tells of a number of problems that still existed. Problems that Nehemiah had to try to handle. And, and the jarring is because you say, well, wait a minute, if, if we've got God's holy people again in the holy place, the temple is rebuilt, the worship is reestablished, the walls are rebuilt to defend them from the enemies outside, how can there be problems? Surely that's, you know, the, the ultimate um, of, of what uh, was being um, accomplished here. Why do we get this chapter 13 in Nehemiah describing all these problems? Uh, we read one case involved the high priest Eliashib, who lent rooms in the temple to a non-Israelite, to Tobiah. Uh, and that, of course, threatened the holiness of the building by having a non-holy, a non-separated to the Lord individual, chapter 13, 4 through 9. That wasn't the only issue. Uh, next, the city officials failed to provide for the Levites as the law commanded. And so then the Levites left the temple for the fields. Well, if you're not going to provide for us, I guess we've got to look to ourselves, they said. And so they left their temple service to go and uh, uh, try and provide for themselves, chapter 13, 10 through 13. And then in addition to that, the men of Judah were breaking Sabbath chapter 13, verses 14 through 22. Um, and then lastly, there was the issue of the recurrence of intermarriage with non-Israelites. So, you can see a whole variety of issues here um, with regard to obedience to God, to His law, covenant loyalty to the Lord. How can this be? If the holy people are in the holy city and the walls are rebuilt and dedicated to the Lord, question that confronts us when we get to Nehemiah 13 was, well, will Israel just repeat the sins of the past? We're just caught in this almost eternal cycle um, that God in His goodness, kindness, mercy, and grace restores them only for them to go through it all over again in disobeying the Lord. The Lord is going to bring judgment. They'll go back out to exile and it'll just be a continuing cycle. That's the challenge of what we see at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Um, God in His mercy provi 
preserved a remnant, but is that remnant just going to repeat the sins of their forefathers? Of course, we've seen that as we've been going through some of the history of the Old Testament through the years in our sermon series. Um, Wilderness generation failed, and the Lord brought judgment, and they fell in the wilderness apart from two, um, Caleb and Joshua. Um, The new generation under Joshua enters the land, but it's not long before the issues are arising again in unfaithfulness, and the Lord brings judgment. Syrians in the north, Babylonians in the south. And now as the Lord restores um, some of the exiles uh, to Jerusalem again, are we just going to go through it all over again? That's what confronts us. That's why it, it seems so jarring in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. And so Ezra, Nehemiah taken together, two distinct but connected books, concludes with what is somewhat of an open question looking at it in time and space from our human point of view. Um, And they look to a future, but what future? Uh, Perfection certainly hasn't been reached, has it? When you've got um, the temple being profaned, when you have Levites not fulfilling their responsibilities because they are not being provided for as God commanded so that they could give themselves to those duties. Um, When Sabbath is being profaned and broken and when there is intermarriage with non-Israelites, which was not permitted under the old covenant. Um, So perfection has certainly not yet been reached. And perfection will not be reached because it sets up that tension until the coming of the one true Israelite, Jesus Christ. And so it's meant to set up that tension and that anticipation that this is not it in terms of fullness of completion and perfection of the Lord's purposes in His redemptive history. It is, as one commentator puts it, still a staging post. It's advancing God's purposes in our time and space, but this is not yet it. Um, One of the commentators, I think, helpfully um, compares and contrasts it um, with the similar sort of thing we find at the end of the book of Acts with Paul in Rome. Remember when we're going through the book of Acts? We get to this end in Acts chapter 28. Paul's in Rome. Um, He's still under some restrictions, but has greater liberties than he's had when he was uh, in in chains in prison. Um, But then Luke breaks off there, and we go, well, well, what next? Um, And and it's not continued. It creates this anticipation, a staging post in the advancement of God's um, eternal purpose, but not yet the end. Um, There's a similar kind of situation here in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as we get to chapter 13. It's setting up an anticipation and a waiting of the coming of Christ, the promised Messiah, who will be that perfect Israelite when these are still not yet. And all the righteousness and all of the uh, covenant loyalty in its perfection will be fulfilled in Him. And when He appears, as we've been thinking in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 26, once for all at the end of the ages, He will put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. So that's how we read the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and we see the purpose of God in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, it's not just a period of history for about a hundred years and what's going on with some ancient Israelites. Um, it's to see God is at work and advancing his kingdom in these things. And then fourthly and lastly, just wanted to introduce you to some main themes to keep in our heads as we begin these two books. We need to be reminded they are not just bare history as we might think of them. Um, one commentator says this, quote, here are events to learn from, not only to learn about. That's a good way of putting it, isn't it? Perhaps our children can remember that. They're not just events to learn about. You're not just learning about them. So I could say, well, I'm going to give you a midterm or a final in a few weeks. Can you quote me all the dates? Who was the first leader who led a group back? And then who was second? Who was third? How many dates? And da, da, da. You're not learning that just for its own sake. But rather, these are events to learn from that will help us as we seek to live as faithful Christians under the new covenant. Uh, let me just paint some uh, three main themes that we find as we think about that. First main theme is what it teaches us about God Himself, and particularly about God as the author, the sovereign author of all events in human history. Um, when we think about God in these books, um, He's not some small God. The gods of the ancient world sometimes were restricted to a certain place, men thought. They could be God there of that people, but they weren't God somewhere else. They didn't have power somewhere else. They were a God of the mountains or a God of the hills or a God of the plains. Um, that's not God as He is described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He is the God who is boldly acclaimed creator, sustainer of heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, as well as all of the earth and its creatures, Nehemiah 9 verse 6. So this is the great God who is the author of all events that we read of in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's also a strong emphasis on the covenant relationship with this God in these books. This God has bound Himself to His people. And therefore, He's bound Himself to the individuals of this people. That's why uh, in the book of Nehemiah in particular, we often hear Nehemiah saying, My God, that very personal um, uh, relationship. Um, faithfulness of this God of covenant is the first thing that we meet, and we'll see that beginning uh, Lord willing, in a few weeks' time as we begin in the book of Ezra. Um, indeed, the whole train of events here is set in motion to fulfill a promise, as we read in Ezra 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Je Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Why did all these things happen? So that God would fulfill His word by the prophet Jeremiah given before the conquering Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. So we think of God as the great God, creator of heaven, sustainer of heaven and earth, um, and we think of the covenant-keeping God, the faithful God. We also see Him as the great sovereign God. Um, he is the one who can move the hearts of kings, Cyrus. Um, if we read of Cyrus, we'll read of that again 
uh, on another occasion as the prophet Isaiah describes him. God says, Cyrus is my servant. He does my will, even though he is a pagan god of the Persians. Um, he also is the God who uh, stirs up his own people with a desire to return. Um, one commentator puts it like this, he is the God who is seen here working with as well as in his people and against as well as through the enemies of God's people, the powerful men of that ancient world. Um, that's a great thing to see of God's sovereignty, isn't it? Working with and in His people, against and through His enemies. What's the encouragement of that? Well, if such a God were for them, to use Paul's language, who could be against them? They may seem small. They may seem insignificant. It may seem the temple had been destroyed, the city had been destroyed, set to fire. Um, very few of them are left. It's a desperate situation, but this God is their God. So the great theme of who God is, He's the great sovereign God, the great covenant faithful God who works in and th with His people against and through the men of power. Second main theme is concerning the people of God. Um, Isaiah had foretold that although Israel might be as the sand of the sea, at this time, only a remnant of them remained. Um, but that was no barrier to this sovereign God. And so here, Ezra and Nehemiah present us with uh, the smallness of the remnant, um, but the greatness of the God of that remnant, so that we can see now God fulfilling His purposes through the people of God again, even though they may be small in the eyes of the world. And there's a new consciousness that is developed in the people of God as they are brought back again to the law, as Ezra teaches them, uh, that they need to do God's will and to be faithful to God in these things, and that they were to be a people set apart from the other nations. They couldn't just be like all those around them. One commentator puts it like this. He says, what we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is an Israel cut down almost to the roots, but drawing new vitality from its neglected source of nourishment in the law of God and already showing signs by its new concern for purity of growing into a people which we meet both for better and for worse when we get to the times of the New Testament, end quote. So, God, the sovereign God of faithful covenant, second main theme, the people of God, and then the third main theme, the means of grace. Um, now, there's much we'll have to speak about this. I just want to line this out for us just so we kind of get it in our framework. Um, first of all, within this, there is the regular provisions for worship reestablished. Um, the altar was set up first, then the completion of the temple, then the restoration of all the observances of Old Testament worship according to the Levitical code. Um, so the regular provisions for worship were reestablished once they returned to the land. 
Second means of grace we see dominant in these books is the means of prayer. Perhaps we think of this mostly in the book of Nehemiah and the prayers of Nehemiah, um, but it's woven through the fabric of both of these books. Um, it takes various forms. There are those short emergency prayers that we read of right at the beginning, Lord help. You remember when uh, uh, the Persian king says to Nehemiah, kind of, um, perhaps to put it colloquially, so what's wrong with you? You know, why is your face so sad? Um, and Nehemiah wishes to be bold, make a request, but he prays that short emergency prayer, Lord, Lord help. And then we read of longer intercessory prayers, um, both in Nehemiah and Ezra. So it's not just one kind of prayer that we read, but, but this comes again and again. Uh, prayer with fasting, uh, prayers of repentance, um, prayers of joyful thankfulness and gratitude. Um, and so, in their content, we find prayers here that reflect a maturity of Old Testament faith, which will be helpful for us. And then, thirdly, uh, what we see within the means of grace is the Word itself, the Word of God, Scripture, uh, more precisely and particularly the law and the law of Moses. Um, of course, other parts of the Bible are referred to, um, but where we start uh, starts with the prophecy, the fulfilled prophecy of Jeremiah. So it's not just the law of Moses that's referenced, but the law of Moses is dominant in these books. Um, again, when we went through the book of Malachi, you may remember, uh, it was not a very good situation for the returns, uh, the ones who'd returned from exile. The scenario was um, situation that called for measures of re-teaching the people the Word of God. That's what confronted Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and the chief cause of the problem, um, whether it's in the beginning, the middle, or the end of the book, is the failure of the priest to teach the law. The people are ignorant of the law of God. And so this is where we find uh, the means of grace as the Word, um, a dominant theme in these books. Let me finish this evening by saying um, there is this certain connection between this last section of what we call the narrative of redemptive history in the Old Testament as we get to the ends of the book uh, of Nehemiah and that um, book of Acts. Let me come back to that, uh, Paul in Rome. Um, both bring the reader, the hearer, to a point of a staging post not the end yet. Everything isn't at final conclusion. Um, one commentator says we're at a staging post rather than a destination. Um, but that invites the reader, the hearer, to inquire, to have an appetite, a desire for knowing, well, when will we get to the end and what is the final purpose of God here? Because it's not in getting to the end where Nehemiah is, nor is it when Paul's in Rome, for that matter, when we get to the end of the book of Acts. Um, to say it reverently, um, but to use some language perhaps we're familiar with in our own day and age, what is the end game here of redemptive history? It's not Nehemiah chapter 13. It's not Acts chapter 28. And so with Nehemiah at Jerusalem, just as with Paul at Rome, the narrative breaks off somewhat abruptly. 
It leaves us in no doubt that there is still a challenging journey ahead. We're not there yet. But it also encourages us, and I trust it does as we close this evening, that it is of a venture well launched and looking forward to God fulfilling His ultimate purpose just as surely and certainly as we read of here God fulfilling His purpose of returning the exiles. God will not fail in His promise to bring everything to consummation on that last great day when He will gather His people not in an earthly city rebuilt, but in a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down from heaven in glory. And this points us to that, points us to that same God, points us to those for whom this is promised, the people of God, and the means that God uses to sustain those people in their hope and in their encouragement, both in terms of His Word, in terms of prayer, and in terms of the ongoing worship of this God, even according to His commandment, whilst we yet await that last great day. So, I trust I have whet your appetite somewhat for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, set some context for us this evening. Uh, sermons of introduction and overview are always somewhat of a challenge. Uh, it tends to be a lot of information, um, but necessary so that we might set foundations, but also that that uh, information can be an encouragement in and of itself. Uh, as we've had the helicopter view this evening, uh, now we'll start to come down and uh, look and survey the land in some more detail as we go forward. But as we've done this evening, we see that God is a faithful God. He is a powerful God who will not fail. There is no enemy who can withstand Him. And He even can move the hearts of the great people of this world, both in that day and in this day, to ensure that His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which shall have no end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is always much for us to absorb and to consider as we try and set the background and the foundations to come to various books in Your Holy Scripture, particularly to those that um, are uh, narrative in their uh, uh, style and uh, deal with many different uh, events and names and places and dates. Yet, Lord, we pray that You would help us not to get lost in all of this, but to see the big picture, to see the big themes, to see the glory, that You are a God who is sovereign over all, who works in, with, through, against, even to bring all things to Your glorious consummation, to the glory of God and to the good of the church. Encourage our souls in our own day, O Lord, when we consider where we are in this uh, great plan of your redemptive history, looking forward even as they did from a different point on the timeline to the glorious consummation. Encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn to our hymnals one final time this Lord's Day and to hymn number 68, Not unto us, O Lord of heaven. Please rise to sing if you are able.
people of God receive the Lord's blessing in his benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and peace.